Good evening, this is Rob McClure with Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. A bipartisan group of Republican politicians and advocacy groups are taking issue with two <coughs> investigations into the 2020 presidential election. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that two Republicans in the national arena are speaking out against probes in Wisconsin, being led by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and State Representative Janelle Branchen. Former New Jersey Governor Christine Whitman and former Kentucky Secretary Trey Grayson described those investigations on a call with reporters today as bad faith efforts rather than fact-finding missions. Along with earlier sunsets and maybe just maybe tree leaves about to change color, you might have noticed one other signal of the changing season. UW-Madison students headed to their first day of classes today, including the largest freshman class in school history. A revamped UW COVID dashboard shows that about 89% of students are vaccinated and 92% of employees are vaccinated. Meanwhile, a GOP state lawmaker who promised to sue all UW system campuses that created COVID-19 policies without the input of the legislature is now taking steps to sue the entire UW system. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. State Senator Steve Nass, a Republican from Whitewater, today formally asked top Republicans in the legislature to sue the university system. Nass had threatened to do so if the UW system did not submit COVID protocols to the legislature for their approval. It's been an ongoing rift between Senator Nass and interim UW system president and former GOP governor Tommy Thompson who has maintained the UW system does not need the input of the legislature to create COVID-19 policies. And in more campus news today, a state agency has dismissed a complaint against UW-Madison's private foundation and its investments in fossil fuel companies. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the Department of Financial Institutions tossed the complaint after citing its lack of enforcement power. The complaint was brought against the UW Foundation by the Climate Defense Project, a left-leaning climate advocacy group. The complaint was filed on behalf of roughly 200 students, faculty, community members, alumni, and staff. The co-signers argued that the foundation's investment in energy companies violates a law that requires nonprofit organizations to invest in line with their stated charitable goals. The city of Madison is looking for input from those with disabilities, their families, and service providers in order to help improve city streets. The city is launching an online survey asking those groups to weigh in on daily transportation challenges and challenges related to mobility-related activities. You can find a link to that petition online on the city's website at cityofmadison.com. A Madison man has been sentenced to five years in prison for trying to burn down a jewelry store during last summer's protests against police brutality and racial injustice. A federal judge handed down the sentence today after a grand jury indicted the man with attempted arson last fall for allegedly trying to burn down Chalmers Jewelers and the Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce Headquarters on East Washington. And now here are your COVID-19 numbers for the day. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services reports that the state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 1,590 new confirmed cases. 
Looking more locally, the Capital Times reports that the Madison Metropolitan School District has reported 45 positive COVID-19 cases and 105 quarantines over the past two weeks. Exact details on those numbers are not known, as the district doesn't provide specific breakdowns on their COVID numbers, including whether the cases are of teachers or students. Those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's news. A new report finds that alcohol tax revenues spiked during the pandemic. The financial benefit for the state's coffers will be minimal, while the toll of increased alcohol consumption may have long-term consequences. Our producer, Jonah Chester, fills us in on the details. A new report finds that alcohol tax revenue surged in the past year, suggesting that consumption of alcohol spiked along with it. The report, released today by the Wisconsin Policy Forum, finds that Wisconsin's alcohol tax revenue increased by nearly 17 percent during the 2021 fiscal year. That's an increase of more than $10 million from 2020. It's the largest single-year spike for alcohol tax revenue since 1972, when tax revenues jumped by nearly 22 percent. That was likely driven by an increase in liquor and wine tax rates and the lowering of the legal drinking age to 18. Mark Sommerhauser, a researcher with the Wisconsin Policy Forum, says stress from the pandemic likely caused an increase in alcohol consumption, although that's a bit difficult to prove. You know, candidly, it certainly seems very, very likely to me (laughs) that the pandemic was uh, a key, if not the overwhelming factor contributing to this increase. Uh, It's just difficult for us to be able to, to, to link that with certainty. I mean, alcohol tax revenues had been increasing. Uh, on an annual basis in most years prior to 2021. But as we note in the report, those were relatively small increases of, you know, 1% to 2% per year, nothing like a 17% annual increase. The Policy Forum based its report on preliminary state data on excise taxes. Those taxes are calculated based on the volume of beverage sold instead of total price. And each type of alcohol is taxed at different rates. Sommerhauser says that the new tax revenue will have minimal impact on the state's coffers. It's a pretty marginal effect, and this is a nice segue into one of the other points that we make in the report, which is that, you know, here in Wisconsin, we have made a policy choice that we tax alcohol at a much lower rate than most other states. In fact, Wisconsin has the 48th lowest beer tax rate in the nation, according to the Tax Foundation. For wine tax rates, we're the 43rd lowest, and Wisconsin's liquor tax rate is the 41st lowest in the nation. The report is the latest data entry pointing to increased alcohol consumption during the pandemic. A previous report from the Policy Forum revealed a 50% increase in drunk driving deaths in Wisconsin during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. Pre-pandemic, in August 2019, the forum reported that alcohol-related deaths in Wisconsin had been steadily increasing over the past 20 years. Tanya Craigie is a recovery coach project manager at Safe Communities of Madison and Dane County, which offers alcohol and substance abuse support services. Craigie says Safe Communities has seen an increase in requests for service since last spring. So we are seeing an increase in requests for services for people that struggle with alcohol use only. They're not necessarily people that use a lot of different things. They are um, asking for services for their alcohol use. But Craigie says providing services for those folks has been a long-running problem. 
She says grants and funding for other substance use disorders, like those involving opioids and amphetamines, are relatively accessible. But that's not the case for alcohol use disorders. This has been a, an ongoing frustration for a few years for anybody trying to provide services in the community. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of dollars out there uh, for people with alcohol use disorder. Precisely, I think that Wisconsin, um, in and of itself, has a high drinking culture. And because of that, it becomes less of that stigmatized use like cocaine or heroin use would bring. Um, and it really is more acceptable. And I think it takes people a little bit longer to realize they might have some challenges with alcohol because it is so socially acceptable. Safe Communities runs a 24-7 hotline that offers callers peer support from folks with lived experiences with alcohol use. Craigie says that the hotline also connects callers with other support services they may need. That number is 608-228-1278. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. After more than a year and a half of limited access during the pandemic, Madison's libraries are back to, well, mostly normal hours. Beginning this week, nine local branches are adding back a cumulative 100 open hours a week. Here's Jade Isiri Ramos. If you've been to one of Madison's libraries recently, you've probably noticed signs boasting about new fall hours. For my local library, the extended hours mean I no longer have to wait until 11 to pick up books, and I can now browse after dinner instead of rushing over right after work. This change in schedule brings the Madison Public Library system to their fully budgeted hours. Director Greg Michael says this comes a year and a half after the decision was made to close all libraries. I've been in this profession a very long time. That was the first time I've ever had to experience to close down an entire system. It's impactful when you're leading an organization that is really designed to be this community asset in welcoming and open always to have to close our doors. I'm extremely proud of our staff's response though and the desire to engage and be innovative. The way we're able to pivot our services He says some of those innovations are here to stay, like delivery to homebound patrons and certain daycares. The new hours went into effect yesterday, but not all libraries are returning to their pre-pandemic schedules. During last year's city budget process, the library had to make cuts. The system is now operating with a budget reduced by 5%, or about $1 million. Michael says the cuts resulted in a reduction in staff hours. The decisions were centric to minimizing the impact to our existing staff as best as possible. The 2021 budget we were able to achieve without any layoffs. Compared to 2019, five libraries have hours or services that are reduced. They are Alicia Ashman, Central, Monroe Street, Penny, and Sequoia. But both Goodman and Lakeview libraries are now open on Sundays. Michael says the decision wasn't targeted at individual libraries, rather the board considered usage data across all libraries. He says the community response has largely been positive. I, I just uh, greatly applaud the the patience and, and the continued support that we've received from the community throughout this pandemic time. They were well aware of our challenges. and Every time that we introduced or restored one of our services, it was greeted warmly. A full list of hours can be found at madisonpubliclibrary.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jade Isiri Ramos. 
The time is now 6.18, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. PrEP is a prescription drug that can reduce the chances of contracting HIV through sex by 99%. Over the past several years, Wisconsin has lagged behind many states in getting the drug to vulnerable populations, something state health officials are looking to change. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Christine Hatfield, a reporter with Wisconsin Public Radio. Hatfield just authored a piece that examines PrEP availability in Wisconsin. So you just authored a piece that takes a look at the uh, widespread use or the lack of widespread use and availability of PrEP here in Wisconsin. Now, PrEP is a, a drug that can prevent HIV infection in folks. Now, walk me through just broadly here. Where does Wisconsin rank compared to the rest of the nation in its availability and uptake of PrEP? I understand uh, you, you looked at years 2014 through 2018. How do we average out during that time frame? Yeah, I mean, from 2014 to 2018, so this is a study that came out last month that measured the state-by-state state uptake of PrEP, the key here being among the populations that would be most vulnerable to to HIV and that sort of thing. So we ranked as high as 19th in 2016 and as low as 32nd in 2018. Now, that, that puts us middle of the road, I, I would say, in I mean, we may not be at the top of the ranks and we may have slipped a bit, but at least we're not a state like, say, Wyoming, where they stayed at the bottom consistently throughout that whole five-year period. So we were doing okay by 2018, but even then, the uptake among those vulnerable populations was only not even 9%. Is there any tangible reason for why the uptake is so low in the single digits, or is it is it sort of a wide variety of reasons? It's a wide, wide variety of reasons. I mean, part of it is, I mean, the the whole thesis of the study was, okay, our states that started adopting PrEP strategies to get more people PrEP, are those early adopters doing better than the states that started, that had a late start, so to speak? And so I think that that's one factor. Another factor is that people just are not in the loop about PrEP, whether it's because their doctors aren't telling them about it or because they're not get, or because these people aren't getting accurate information or because there's that mistrust of health providers that there tends to be in a lot of marginalized communities. And I mean, cost is a factor too. I mean, insurance in the United States being the thing that it is, up until a year or two ago, roughly, there was only one company making PrEP. And so now more recently, we've started to see generic versions of PrEP come onto the market. And so that's making it more accessible and more affordable. Now that's not reflected in the study itself, but it is helping matters. Now, you base your reporting on that that study you mentioned there, which I previously mentioned, takes a look at 2014 through 2018. Do we have any more recent numbers from 2019 through, say, 2020, or are those still being calculated? Those are still being calculated. And trust me, I made a point of asking the studies, one of the studies authors, and I'm afraid we don't really have more recent numbers, but we do have reason to believe that things are headed in the right direction. Why, why is that? 
I mean, partly factors of, okay, well, more people are finding out about this. I mean, PrEP's only really been out there for about a decade now, give or take a, a year or two. So it's still relatively new in the grand scheme of things. And, and so people are still finding out about it. And then also what I mentioned earlier about there now being generic versions of the drug that are driving down the price and the cost of, of this life-saving drug considerably. So that's making a big difference. Uh, digging a little bit deeper on that last case, do we have any uh, any supporting evidence for how widespread availability of the generic version of PrEP, how that's impacted uh, uptake in other states, or has that yet to be sort of investigated? No, that's not really something we have much data on at this point. It's one of those things where you, you tend to look more in the rear view mirror on that and get a sense of, okay, where were we just now? And then you devise your strategies to keep on going from there. So how is the Wisconsin Department of Health Services working to to increase uh, uptake of PrEP and getting it to the populations that need it most? Right. I mean, they're actually in the midst of working on a brand new five-year plan to reckon with HIV in Wisconsin. And that's very much a work in progress, I will say. That's going to be out by the end of next year. But yeah, I, I think the, the the big part of what Wisconsin's doing right now is education about ma- making it clear that okay, yes, HIV still does have this big impact on people's lives. But if you're getting the health care you need, and that's the key, you're getting the, if you're getting the health care you need, it's not the death sentence it used to be. Even compared to like ten, fifteen years ago, things are. The outlook is a lot brighter for for people who are HIV positive. I mean, as for what Wisconsin's doing right now, as far as dealing with that public health response, and the key is making sure that people are aware of these options as far as getting the care they need for HIV, like pills like PrEP, for example, or care if you're HIV positive that will essentially make you undetectable, which essentially means you've got no risk of transmitting HIV to your partners. And and so that's the big thing is, one, making sure people are aware of all these options for care if they aren't positive, and then if they are positive, making sure that they have these options on hand so they can live long and hopefully happy and healthy lives like all of us. Christine, that takes care of all my questions for today. Before I let you go, though, is there anything else you want to add to the record um, from your reporting that we haven't quite touched on here today that you you think folks should be aware of? I mean, something I've had running in the back of my mind and all this is, so we talk about how HIV isn't the death sentence it used to be. I mean, we know a lot more about it now and how to deal with it than we did at the start of the century, let's say. But that that depends on getting people that care that depends on making sure that marginalized people whether it's lgbtq people people of color people within those all those different intersections if they're not getting the the care they need then the question comes into play of whether we're really doing our jobs here so I think that's the big thing is is making sure that these sorts of things, this education on HIV and things like PrEP, making sure that those populations that are the most vulnerable 
know about these things and can get that care, that's going to make a long, it's going to make a huge difference in the long run. Christine, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and sharing your reporting. I appreciate it. Always happy to be on. Christine Hatfield is a reporter with Wisconsin Public Radio. You can find her full write-up of PrEP uptake here in Wisconsin online at WPR.org, or we'll have a link to the story in the web post of this interview on WORTFM.org. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more coming at you in the second half of the show. We will, as we do every Wednesday, get the week in local government news on Downtown Abbey. Madison in the 60s will revisit some questionable behavior by UW students. And, of course, I'll bring you the most comprehensive weather forecast on the air, as they say. A beautiful weekend coming up, too, and I will spare no detail. But first, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half of the show. Each week, we turn to the Cap Times' Abigail Becker for what you need to know about what your local government is up to. Up for discussion this week, local leaders support a unionizing attempt, local redistricting rolls along, and we'll let you take it from here with uh, the latest from Becker on this episode of Downtown Abbey. All right, it is Wednesday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by our local government wizard herself, a local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, how you doing this week? Hi, Jonah. I'm not too bad. How about yourself? I'm doing just fine and dandy. It is a bright and sunshiny day outside. A great day, in fact, to talk about what's happening here in local government. So why don't we go ahead and jump right in. Uh, Off the top here, let's look back to last week when local leaders came out in support of efforts of local UW Health nurses to form a union. Give me an update on that. What's going on with that situation? Yeah, so last week, um, Alders Patrick Heck and Lindsay Lemmer spearheaded a resolution which was introduced at the city council's meeting last Tuesday in support of a union voice for nurses at UW Health. And of note, Mayor Sati Rose Conway is also in support of this resolution and is a sponsor of it. So this resolution recognizes that UW Health nurses performed critical work during the pandemic and experienced challenges within the hospital system like, as they put it, deteriorating staff-to-patient ratios, decreased continuing education benefits, rising health care costs, scheduling issues, and recruitment and retention difficulties. Local elected officials and nurses planned to gather last Thursday at the front entrance of the city-county building in support of that resolution to represent the 10,000 empty nursing positions that will need to be filled by the end of the decade. 50 scrub tops were displayed at the event um, to really get that image across of the nursing shortage. UW Health Nurses once had a, a strong union and a solid contract, 
according to a press release from the alders announcing the resolution. But that did change after Wisconsin Law Act 10. Republican former Governor Scott Walker's plan effectively ended collective bargaining for most public sector unions. According to UW Health, there was no legal ability to bargain a new contract when that existing one ended in 2014. A majority of nurses expressed their desire to unionize in 2019, and in response to that effort, University of Wisconsin Hospitals and Clinics Authority Board issued a statement acknowledging that there was opportunity for improvement in two-way communication between employees and management. Last week, a spokesperson for UW Health said that regardless of union status, UW Health leaders and staff nurses work together directly and collaboratively to make sure that the needs of uh, patients are met. According to UW Health, the hospital has worked with nurses to identify challenges and their needs, including flexibility in scheduling. Additionally, the hospital said staff-to-patient ratios rank in the top 20% of peer organizations, meaning that there are more nurses per patient. 300 nursing positions have been added over the last two years, and the turnover rate at UW Health was 11%, and less than the national turnover rate of 17%. Um, Also in that uh, press release announcing the resolution, Ashley Campbell, who has worked for UW Health for over a decade as a certified nursing assistant and registered nurse, said that nurses are left out of the loop in decision-making, especially around safety. So this resolution, again, was introduced last week and will be making its way through the various committees. And so I will follow what happens next with that. And turning our attention from the city to the county, if Dane County residents have ideas about how their voting district should look, they can draw maps and submit them to the county's redistricting commission. Tell me a little bit more about that effort. Yeah, so redistricting happens once every 10 years following the census, and it's the process of redrawing the boundaries of districts from which public officials are elected to reflect changes in population. So these boundaries can be, you know, aldermanic district wards, um, they can be in the county, and they can be across the state. Dane County's redistricting efforts this year include a participatory process for residents. This is also the first time a nonpartisan and independent redistricting commission is overseeing the map making in Dane County. Previously, the county board actually drew new boundaries. In 2016, the Dane County Board of Supervisors adopted an ordinance that created the redistricting commission, and it included a provision that members of the public are able to submit maps for consideration. The commission's 11 members were appointed by County Board Chair Annalise Eicher and County Clerk Scott McDonald following an application process in 2020. The commission will accept maps from the public through September 19th. Uh, so far, um, you know, as of yesterday, Dane County Planner Brian Standing told me that about 20 drafts have been submitted through the online tool the county is using, which is called District Builder. Prior to accepting maps, the county had also asked residents to use another online platform called Representable to find out how residents view their communities. For example, who do they consider to be their neighbors and what businesses or schools do they interact with on a regular basis? Submissions on that included one from the town of Springfield, which is located in northwestern Dane County, that described the town as rural and a farm community with no connection with cities. And the description there said that, you know, um, this person's fellow farmers needs to be represented by rural people and not paired with and dominated by a city. So there were some interesting submissions there uh, to read about how, you know, some residents view their communities. Dane County is required to consider district lines that keep neighborhoods and communities that have established common interests 
whether those things are historical, racial, economic, ethnic, religious, um, or you know any any other common interests there. Each district should also represent the same population size. You know, so it's not a. I don't think it's the easiest process to you know to meet all of those um, criteria and to draw these maps. So maps submitted to the commission should have districts that represent the same population size, are contiguous and compact, and consider natural boundaries like lakes. They should also minimize the number of municipal boundaries that are crossed and ensure fair and effective representation of the diverse ethnic and racial population in Dane County. Additionally, these maps should keep neighborhoods and communities of interest and association intact. And that can include you know, characteristics that are historical, racial, economic, ethnic, or religious. And finally, these districts should be withdrawn without regard to incumbency. So they shouldn't take into account who is currently representing these areas. Ultimately, the redistricting commission is responsible for admitting at least three draft supervisory district maps to the Dane County Board of Supervisors. And then the board will adopt a final map. So the redistricting commission will meet virtually um, Thursday at seven o'clock. So if you want to tune in, you certainly can. The directions on how to join are on the top of that agenda. This commission is also fairly busy and is going to meet a few more times in September with three meetings scheduled. Um, so if you if this really speaks to you, you can definitely get involved in the map making process. And our final item of business here today, looking internally over at the Cap Times, the Cap Times Idea Fest is common. Give me some of the highlights from, from your guys' end. Yeah, I thought I'd share a little bit about what is going on with this event. So the schedule is out today online at captimes.com. So you can uh, check that out and map out how you'd like to participate in the event this year. So starting next week on Monday and running through Saturday, September 18th, there will be a total of 26 sessions featuring 77 speakers. And then there's also going to be two bands, which I think is kind of fun. Topics are going to range from, you know, the pandemic to politics and racial equity and, um, you know, business issues as well. Sessions earlier in the week will be virtual only and released on captimesideafest.com. So this is great if you can't make the in-person events or would rather uh, just tune in virtually. Um, so the events that are in person are on Friday and Saturday, and those are in Shannon Hall and the Play Circle at the Union. Um, they do require a ticket, and information on that can be found online as well. So I'll actually be moderating panels on local law enforcement and housing. So on the policing panel, I'll be asking panelists, who include Chief Sean Barnes, about what's changed over the past year since major protesting occurred in Madison and across the nation. And on housing, I'll be asking panelists to include Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway about how the city can fix and address major problems related to housing access and affordability. All right, that does it for this episode. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, thanks so much for joining me this week. It's always great to be here, Jonah. Thanks so much. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, after summer lingered with oppressive heat and humidity pretty much right up to the end of August, a much more classically autumnal regime is set in for September, and that's been especially true the past couple of days, which have been breezy with some fairly wide swings in temperature. And, of course, that's the kind of thing you'd expect this time of year as the boreal regions start to darken and cool and the area of strongest uh, strongest temperature contrast gets 
pushed southward back down the globe after having been north of us up in Canada all summer. And it's the density differences between warm and cold that are the factors that drive the wind. You can see a couple of nice illustrations of increased temperature contrast and wind on some of the graphics we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, including the water vapor image of North America and the visible satellite of the upper Midwest, both of which are up in the featured graphics section there. The water vapor shows the big upper trough that's currently sitting above us, developing over the past 48 hours, and then plunging south into this region with its cold air accelerating the velocity of the upper winds diving down and around it as it pushes south into warmer air. And on the visible satellite, you can see some of that velocity translated down to the low and mid-levels of the atmosphere, where the deep cumulus that developed overhead today are being similarly driven at speed south and southeastward around the bowl of the upper low. Indeed, that visible image provides a nice view of the range of vertical development in the cumulus with the deeper cold pool and stronger convergence to our northeast, producing the thickest piles of cloud. Indeed, some of those thick enough to uh, have some showers underneath of them. We've, uh, we've got a pretty benign forecast coming up in the coming days. The center of the cold high-pressure cell that's been uh, breezily flowing into the area the past 24 hours is still way up in the western Dakotas, so that will take another 48 hours or so to pass here and begin to move off to the southeast. Like the previous high-pressure cell that was over us at the beginning of the week, this one's going to do a good job blocking moisture return off the Gulf of Mexico. So the southwesterly winds that set up on Friday after the center of the surface high goes past us should remain dry and free of cloud cover, except for maybe a few strands of cirrus on into Saturday. It appears the next cold frontal passage will then be later Saturday afternoon or evening, but it's looking dry so far on the extended modeling, though I'd expect the increasing cloud cover later Saturday. The upper pattern will become less amplified and more zonal as we go through the weekend, so the next Canadian high surface uh, connects... <laughs> Try it again. The next Canadian surface high that will be pushing in here from the north behind that cold front will... Uh, probably not get very far south of us before uh, low pressure to our west starts to rewarm us Sunday into Monday. And that may be when we have our next uh, credible chance of precip precipitation. The more extended regions, ranges of the forecast modeling on the global forecast systems model show us staying on average at or above normal right on out towards the equinox, a view which is also corroborated by the mid-range desk over at the Climate Prediction Center. So frost or anything close to it even doesn't look to be a concern for a good while yet. We can see quite cold temperatures this time of year. But back to the nearer term, tonight uh, remaining cumulus should dissipate through the evening and clear skies will allow the temperatures to drop to the low 50s on northwesterly winds coming down to 4 to 7 miles per hour by daybreak. Those winds should keep valley fog at bay, but we could develop some patches of low clouds as we get towards dawn. Tomorrow, any early cloud cover or, or fog should mix out with skies becoming clear for a few hours before cumulus redevelop in the late afternoon or evening. Those cumulus should be shorter and more widely scattered than today. Temperatures will reach the mid-70s on northwesterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Skies will clear for the overnight with temperatures dropping to around 50 or so with lighter winds becoming near calm by dawn on Friday. 
And early morning valley fog on Friday should mix out with skies becoming mostly sunny and a temperature reaching the upper 70s later on on southwesterly winds, which will come up through the day to 5 to 10 or 12 miles per hour by evening. will be somewhat breezy then and in the low 60s overnight. And Saturday looks pretty nice, mostly sunny with passing high clouds and a high temperature probably around 80 or in the low 80s on southwesterly winds coming up to 8 to 12 miles per hour. Clouds will increase late day and winds will veer lightly north or northeast overnight with a low temperature in the upper 50s. And Sunday will be in the mid-70s and I think the day will be dry with the highest chance of rain coming in on Monday. At the moment, at the airport in Madison, the air temperature is 71 degrees. The dew point temperature is 50. The winds are out of the northwest at 10 miles per hour. Uh, just a few cumulus left up at about 4,300 feet. We do have some broken alta cumulus up at about 9,000 feet. Uh, the barometer is at 90, <laughs> 29.86 inches of mercury and rising. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to several years in the 1960s when young men's thoughts turned to some disturbing actions that the WORT news team does not recommend. We'll let Stu Levitan explain on this week's installment of Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s. Panty Raids. October 8, 1961. It's just after midnight Sunday morning, and more than a thousand beer and hormone-soaked young men are out on State Street. They're celebrating the football team's victory over Indiana and delighting in a 20-year-old German model in a tight blue dress playing Toreador in the street. Suddenly, a group of celebrants set up a ladder, which their leader ascends. He leads the crowd in cheers and college songs, until he suddenly shouts, Let's go on a panty raid! The crowd becomes a mob and surges toward the new Lowell Hall. The horde chants, We want panties! as a group mounts the first-floor roof and breaks a window before being driven off by a broom-wielding janitor. They're likewise thwarted at Anne Emery Hall. The mob fills State and Langdon streets, pushing cars and even rocking an unmarked police car. Some toss stones and cups of beer at the lawmen. After a large firecracker breaks a squad car radiator, police bring out, but don't use, tear gas and fire hoses and the crowd disperses. Police make five arrests for disorderly conduct, two students, two locals ages 18 and 24, and a Truaxfield airman. 
Charges against two are eventually dropped. Three forfeit bail. Five students are placed on disciplinary probation and or suspended for the spring semester and ordered to apologize by letter to Police Chief Wilbur Emery. UW officials reaffirm a 1959 policy statement that any student in a mob, regardless of what he or she does, is fully responsible for all of the mob's actions and is subject to discipline. October 13, 14, 1962. Beer bars, women's dorms, and a warm, moonlit night make for a bad brew the weekend of the Badgers' big game with Notre Dame. On each night, about 3,000 young men go on panty raids that become near riots. The worst campus disturbances since the panty raid of May 1952, when police made 21 arrests. It starts at bar time, a quarter to one on Saturday morning. As the six beer bars in the lower three blocks of State Street empty and the suds-soaked crowd builds, the men's thoughts turn to co-eds. They were forced to return to their rooms by their 12.30 curfew. The boys make their way to the new Allen Hall on the north corner of State and Francis Streets, calling for bras and panties. We want silk! the lusty fellows bellow, and several young women oblige, waving and dangling undergarments from their windows. Excitement builds. Soon a car driving through the packed intersection knocks down a boy. Then a policeman clubs a student. Flying beer bottles break windows at the Madison Inn and Allen Hall before the mob moves on to Lowell Hall, where custodian Merlin Marty, cut by flying glass from a broken door, opens the fire hose to hold the students back. Things are now totally out of control. The mob blocks traffic all the way to the Capitol Square, bouncing cars and cavorting in the intersections. Students pelt police with cans and bottles, even rocks and stones. Seven police are injured, including three policemen and a fireman. The police make 13 arrests, including the students who roll a parked car off the end of Lake Street and into the water pushing it 30 feet from shore. Thankfully, the Notre Dame student sleeping in the Chevy's back seat wakes up in time to escape injury. Early Sunday morning, after quarterback Ron Vanderkellen and All-American end Pat Richter lead the Badgers to a 17-8 victory over the Irish, it starts again. But this time, police are ready, and 20 officers are on the scene by midnight. With their active use of billy clubs in the paddy wagon, Property damage is down, but arrests are up. 34 young men are taken away, mainly for getting into drunken, bloody brawls. On Monday morning, the Faculty Committee on Student Conduct summarily suspends 20 students, reinstating 15 of them the next day. A handful of students pay fines of $105, but almost all have their charges dismissed by a sympathetic criminal and traffic court judge William Bensley. I can realize from my own experience in the past that this was a case of your being in the wrong place at the wrong time, the jurist says. May 17th and 18th, 1967. The big student demonstration this week was supposed to be against the dangerous wrong-way bus lane on University Avenue. But hours after 3,000 activists blocked the buses, about 300 boisterous young men stage a combination panty raid march to the Capitol. They rock a city bus, break a window, and block University Avenue. 
25 of the bus protesters are arrested. None of the Panty Raid rioters are. The next night, the Panty Raiders staged the worst campus disorder in years as another 3,000 students invade women's dorms, smash lights on State Street and at the State Capitol, and disrupt traffic throughout downtown. Although this second disturbance is entirely unrelated to the bus demonstration against the wrong way bus lane, the mob again rocks some city buses, breaking several windows. Bus drivers retaliate by spraying fire extinguishers, which only generates greater violence. The people of this city are furious at the university, says Mayor Otto Feske, declaring police will, quote, crack their heads together if necessary to restore order. And he demands the university get copies of the police reports and call those students in for discipline. Chancellor Robin Fleming, who's already announced he's leaving to become president of the University of Michigan, says he will neither discipline students for non-academic offenses nor crack their heads. And September 14, 1969, a year marked by National Guardsmen coming to campus during the Black Study Strike in February and the three-day Mifflin Block Party riot in May, ends in a farcical anticlimax at the Southeast Dorms. Take it off! Take it off! About 200 young men from Og Hall holler at the women of neighboring Celery Hall. Their chants escalate to earthier demands before the half-hour throwback event peters out. There are no arrests. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Live local news that is put together mostly by volunteers. Volunteers perhaps like you, if you want to get into producing news on local radio, we'll provide you training. So give us a call at 256-2001. We need reporters. We need writers. We need positions, uh, all sorts of positions on the show. So get involved. It's a lot of fun. 256-2001. Your reporter tonight, your lone reporter, was Jade Siri Ramos. Special thanks to feature contributors Abby Becker and Stu Levitan. Jonah Chester produced the newscast. Ken Brady was our on-air engineer. And Shali Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.